Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we are looking for the warning signs, taking inventory of discontent, and listening to our internal struggles to avoid burnout and stay engaged. Whether you're feeling frazzled in the moment or downright over it, either professionally or personally, wait. Take a step back. A big breath. Now, let it out. We've got time to re-engage and re-engineer our approach. You might need a new pair of eyes on the situation. Those could be yours after you've had a chance to unpack some of your frustration Or you could invite in a third-party opinion. Being so stuck in a routine or too up close and personal could be preventing you from finding your way out. We've all gotten stuck in the mundane at some point in our life. No matter what path you take, you will encounter ruts that need special attention. Sometimes routine and predictability can be comforting and just what you need, and other times in your life, it could push you over the edge. Ugh, life, please give me more. Your answer might be a radical shift like an alternative location, new friends, or a different career. But it also might be a new attitude. Looking at the same situation with a different lens and a new lease on life. Chris Cancelosi kicks us off with How to Avoid Burnout at Work, Five Proven Ways to Re-Engage. This was found at GothamCulture.com. Feeling burned out at work is both frustrating and exhausting. Even if you enjoy some parts of your job, the continual stress can be overwhelming. If you feel overworked and underappreciated, it's easy to feel angry and resentful towards your team members or your boss. Occupational burnout is characterized by exhaustion, lack of enthusiasm and motivation, feelings of infectiveness, frustration, and cynicism, and results in reduced efficiency. If this sounds like you, you're not alone. Nearly 70% of U.S. workers feel the same way, though this shouldn't be too surprising. At its core, occupational burnout is caused by excessive and prolonged stress, and these days, the workplace is even more stressful. Take Amazon, for example. As reported in the New York Times a couple of years ago, new employees are told to forget the poor habits they learned at previous jobs. When they hit the wall from the unrelenting pace, there's only one solution. Climb the wall. It's no wonder that nearly half of HR leaders attribute up to 50% of their employee turnover to employee burnout. So what can you do about it? How can you avoid burnout at work and start feeling excited about your job again? Here are five proven ways to bounce back from burnout. Number one, think positive. It might feel good the first time you confide in a coworker about your frustration at work, but over time, constant negativity may be making things worse. Having a friend at work to confide in makes a difference, but there is a limit. Your coworkers might be trying to make the best of things, and your venting wears down even the best of friends. Even if you find people who are equally frustrated, it may only reinforce your negativity and unhappiness. 
In his book, Love Yourself, Like Your Life Depends on It, Kamal Ravikant explains that we as human beings think that we're thinking, not true. Most of the time, we're remembering. We're reliving memories. We're running familiar patterns and loops in our head. For happiness, for procrastination, for sadness, we have loops for everything. Imagine a thought loop as this, a pathway laid down by constant use. Like a groove in a rock created by water. Enough time, enough intensity, and you got a river. What you focus on grows. The key is to stop the flow of negativity by doing something about it. You must disrupt your patterns. Stop bringing other people down by complaining. Own up to your behavior and start taking real steps towards making your situation better. Reframe who you think you work for. One of the facts of modern life is that a relatively small class of people works very long hours and earns good money for its efforts. This writes Ryan Avent in The Economist. Nearly a third of college-educated American men, for example, work more than 50 hours a week. Some professionals do twice the amount, and elite lawyers can easily work 70 hours a week almost every week of the year. With work taking up so much of our daily lives, we must be thoughtful about making it worth our while. Early on in your career, you probably want to make a good impression for your boss, so you push your boundaries to do exceptional work for the company and accept every single additional request that comes into your inbox. Over time, however, these requests become bothersome as you settle into the flow of your work. These seeds of resentment will only grow to anger cynicism and more stress if it's left unchecked. Here's the secret. You're not working for your boss or the company. Sure, you rely on them for a paycheck, but at the end of the day, you're working for yourself and your career. And once you let go of feeling like you're under your boss's thumb, you can begin to uncover the parts of your work that you actually enjoy. Take a look at your job as it is now and remember why you're there. Even if it's a stepping stone to something else, use your current environment and resources to your advantage. Make it less about your boss or the bureaucracy and more about pushing yourself towards your professional goals. Use your job to build your resume, a portfolio of exceptional work, and pursue your personal and professional development goals while you're at it. Your employer will still benefit by getting the best of you. Value your downtime. These days, everyone is talking about finding their passion in their work or finding work that matches their passion. We're continually told to work harder, to hustle, for what we want out of our careers and life, and many people even take on additional side projects, working more to try and achieve it. Yet, research has proven that taking downtime has significant benefits. According to Harvard Business Review, drawing brighter lines between work and time off family, friends, outside activities, and old-fashioned daydreaming has clear benefits for productivity, creativity, and wellness. Start by scheduling time off for yourself and stick to it like you would any other important meeting. If you're going to stop work at 5 p.m., for example, you should shut down your computer at 5 p.m. sharp. 
It may sound silly, but downtime might feel uncomfortable at first. If not trained, your old patterns will try and pull you back, telling you to finish that one last task before shutting down for the day. Unfortunately, that one last task can easily snowball and turn into a few more hours of work. One way to disrupt your patterns is to replace them with new ones. Rediscover your hobbies, carve out some time to enjoy them again, and be strict with yourself. If you want to take an hour for yourself to enjoy your coffee and read first thing in the morning, don't let yourself pick up your phone and start checking email or Facebook. Start doing things that you personally enjoy again. Rediscover the joys of life outside of work. When establishing these new routines, it also helps to reduce as much friction as possible. If your coffee and book routine is important to you, invest in an automatic coffee maker so it's ready to go when you wake up. If you want to start running in the morning, lay out all your running gear the night before so it won't allow yourself time in the morning to talk yourself out of it. Set your boundaries. We often don't realize how much occupational burnout affects our lives outside the office. Work becomes another distraction vying for our attention, constantly pinging us with new email or Slack notifications during off hours. And believe me, whether you're trying to manage kids and dinner or still a few quiet moments to unwind, the added stress is the last thing you need. Allowing these micro-interruptions in your life wears you out when it's time to be creative and work. Boundaries play a huge role in ensuring you keep work in the context of your professional goals, but they are absolutely necessary if you hope to value your downtime. Establishing new boundaries is difficult, mainly because you have to retrain yourself, your family, your coworkers, and your boss to work within them. That might mean something as simple as closing down your email while you're actively working on a project and not responding to messages outside of scheduled time blocks. It might mean you have a frank conversation with your manager and explain that you're going to be offline and unavailable on nights and weekends, but will give your work full attention within business hours. Even if your workplace only operates within office hours, there are other distractions to consider. If you have a bad habit of checking social media in your downtime, for example, you might try shutting off notifications on your devices completely during certain hours with scheduled do not disturb settings. You can also explore more advanced time management tools to help set boundaries in other areas. Or, if you find yourself mindlessly scrolling through your work email on your commute or at lunch, feed yourself some other content that you personally enjoy instead, like a good book or a personal development podcast. By the time you get back to work, you'll feel more creative and recharged. At home, you might set boundaries around your personal time or time with your family. Talk to your partner and establish boundaries around the time you need for hobbies. Let your friends know you're not going to answer their texts after 8 p.m. Boundaries like these are critical to set expectations for both yourself and those around you as you dig yourself out of this burnout. End your day on a high note. One way to trick your brain into starting refreshed and motivated each day lies in how you finish the day before. Instead of pushing through to finish a project early, Stop your work at a point you look forward to returning to it. For example, 
If you've set the boundary to stop work at 5 p.m., take a moment at 4.30 to jot down on a post-it what to do next for one to three projects and stick it right on your monitor. By using a post-it, you accomplish two things. First, you know exactly where to pick up the next morning, hopefully an exciting place, without having to reacquaint yourself with the task at hand. Second, you avoid starting your day in the technology trap of email and other distractions so you can get right to work on the very next item on your to-do list. This won't always work if deadlines are looming, but it's an effective strategy for ongoing projects to keep you motivated and focused. Let me be clear, I'm not advocating for you to stay in your job if it's making you absolutely miserable. The last thing you should do is simply settle into cynicism at your monotonous job for the next 10 years. Sometimes, despite your best efforts to make the best of it and re-engage with your work, your job simply isn't right for you. Maybe you've been working at the same company for several years without any professional development or promotion opportunities. Perhaps year after year, you see coworkers walk out the door and advance their careers while you stay put without any growth opportunity. Worse yet, serious health issues can accompany severe occupational burnout. In fact, a growing body of evidence suggests that burnout is clinically similar to depression. One study involving 5,575 school teachers found that 90% of the teachers identified as burned out met diagnostic criteria for depression. When things get so bad you don't feel like you have any other options, it's important to keep your emotions in check and continue to do your job to the best of your ability until you're ready to make a move. Take some time to plan ahead and don't be surprised when people act differently towards you when you finally decide to leave. At the end of the day, you should enjoy your work, even if you don't always enjoy your job. If you're miserable in your job today, take stock of what the underlying causes might be. Remember, it's ultimately the organization's responsibility to build a culture that values its people. And if there are things within that environment that you can change to make your work life better, these strategies will help you re-engage. I had a former employer tell me, the day starts and ends with you. At the time, I took it as, yeah, yeah, it's my job to be in a good mood every day, to end the day on a positive note. And where that's true, it's a bit bigger and far more reaching than that. Your perception is your story. How you see things will shape every aspect of your life because you have the lens in which you see through. To gain a different perspective, you have to get a better vantage point. This day is your day to elevate. No one is in charge of lifting or wrecking your day but you. Want happier days? Become a happier person. Want to avoid burnout? Tell yourself that today you're going to reframe what you see and re-engage with your life. Let's learn a little bit more about that idea. Lucy Folks tells us how to engage with life when you feel down, found at psych.co. When you feel low or fed up, it's tempting to shut down and do very little. 
You might cancel activities and social events and choose passive options instead, like staying in bed or watching TV. It's easy to understand why this happens. When you feel down or depressed, even simple tasks take a lot of effort and energy. It can also be distressing if things aren't as enjoyable as they used to be. One of the most effective ways to improve a low mood is to do the very thing you don't feel like doing. In 1973, the American behavioral psychologist Charles Furster noticed that people who feel low tend to do less. In particular, they engage in fewer activities that bring them enjoyment or meaning. He argued that this drop in activity could be an important factor in understanding and treating depression. His observations provided the foundation for his behavioral model of depression, which still informs our understanding of the condition today. According to behavioral approaches, depression is the result of a problematic cycle between reduced activity and low mood. The cycle begins when a person starts doing less, which means that they become more withdrawn and isolated. This, in turn, leads to fewer opportunities for positive experiences or distraction, exacerbating a person's low mood. This makes the person even less motivated to try effortful, interesting activities, and the cycle continues. This negative cycle doesn't come out of nowhere. It often starts for a clear reason. The low mood seen in depression is often predicted by a big context shift. This comes from Dean McMillan, professor of clinical psychology at Hull York Medical School at the University of York. This shift is caused by a significant change in circumstances, like a divorce, a demanding period at work, or any other type of traumatic event. The context shift means that the activities a person used to enjoy become difficult or impossible. For example, after a divorce, people might find it upsetting to go to places they used to enjoy with their partner, or a student under pressure at a university might be too tired to try once-loved hobbies. The risk, then, is that people withdraw further. They choose easy but unrewarding behaviors instead, like staying at home. This withdrawal is driven by people's desire to avoid the negative emotions that they were experiencing when they try to do these activities. According to David Richards, a professor of mental health services at the University of Exeter, McMillan agrees adding this behavior works in the intermediate term because it makes you feel better. The difficulty lies in what this inactivity sets up in the long term. The risk, he says, is that it moves you further from what you need to do to get something out of the world. The key to relieving depression, according to behavioral approaches, is to somehow break the cycle of inactivity and low mood. This is the main goal of behavioral treatment that the American psychologist Peter Lewinson and his colleagues have been developing since 1960. Today, this approach is known as behavioral activation, BA and is well-established as an effective psychological therapy for depression. In BA, people experiencing depression are gradually encouraged to engage in the very activities they stop doing. 
The idea is that the cycle of inactivity and low mood is replaced with a more beneficial cycle in which productive, meaningful activities make people feel better, which in turn increases motivation for more activity. One participant from a research study about BA described the process. I think BA helped me a lot because then I started to take care of some stuff and got it done. Just the happy feeling that you get when you've managed to accomplish your goal. BA is a standalone treatment, but its principles often appear in other forms of therapy, including cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. In fact, in one study comparing different types of therapy, BA was just as effective at reducing depression as full CBT. Although BA was originally developed as a therapist-led treatment, it involves simple principles that you can implement yourself to improve your mood. So what should you do? Monitor what you do each day. The first step involves keeping a record of all your activities for a week. There are free worksheets available online, but you can also make one up yourself. Draw up an empty timetable, splitting each day into hourly slots or into morning, afternoon, and evening. Then for a week, make a note of what you did each day. Critically, you should also make a note of how you felt during each activity, from zero feeling really down to 10 feeling positive and upbeat. For example, you might note that you watch TV in the morning and your mood was about a three. Then you did a yoga class in the afternoon and your mood was about a five. The idea is that this step helps gather information about the small changes in behavior that could make a big difference, but we overlook them. If the idea of tracking your activities for a full week seems daunting, then you could do it for less time. The aim is to set the recorded activity step at a level in which you can manage. So this might be doing one day or doing a few time points during the day. For example, for a young person, a parent might help them complete this. It has to be tailored to the individual. If the idea of tracking your behavior at all seems too hard, BA principles could still be useful to you. Just skip this step and go to the make a plan step. Make a plan for the following week. Now, you need to schedule activities for the upcoming week using the same Blake worksheet as before. Look back at your diary from the previous week and include in your schedule the activities you were doing when you experienced a slightly better mood. In addition, try to add some of the activities you have stopped doing or are doing less of now. You don't need to fill out every slot, but the aim is to schedule at least one or two activities for each day. To figure out the kind of things you should include, it's useful to think about not just what you enjoy, but also what you find meaningful or important, or what you used to do before this period of low mood. The idea is personally to identify what's important to you in your life. It's about where you want your life to be going, if you enjoy going out with friends, for example, you could invite someone to go for a coffee or make plans to call a friend. If you value learning, you could plan to take a book out of the library or listen to a new podcast. There isn't a set list of activities you're supposed to try. Schedules for a school-aged teenager or a working parent might be a bit different. What matters to you will depend on your own unique circumstances. There might be some less fun things in your schedule too. 
If it's important for you to have a tidy house, for example, you might want to schedule some cleaning or clear out. Macmillan emphasizes that it's about finding balance between three different types of activity. The pleasurable, like seeing a friend, the routine, like showering and cooking, and the necessary, like cleaning up. It isn't just about doing nice things, he says. It's just as important to get up and brush your teeth and have a bath. It's about doing things that get you into a positive mood in your life. Stick to the plan, even when you don't feel like it. A key aspect to BA is that you need to carry out all your planned activities even when you don't feel like it. According to the theory, opportunities for positive mood change occur only once when you're doing the activity, so it's important to attempt it even in spite of how you're feeling. It's useful to think about working from the outside in, not the inside out. Rather than telling yourself, when I feel better, I'll do the activity then. You're changing your behavior first, then the thoughts and feelings catch up. If it feels impossible to get going, there are a number of things that you can try. First, you can break down the activity into smaller steps or do it for shorter periods of time. You could also experiment with strategies that boost the chances of completing your activities. McMillan emphasizes the importance of setting up the right contacts. He suggests that you ask yourself, what's going to make the behavior more likely to happen? Consider, for example, writing down the task somewhere you'll see it or asking a friend to do an activity with you. Evaluate how it went. At the end of each day, reflect on how you felt when you did each activity. Note which activities led to an increase in positive mood, even if it was small, and which contributed to lower moods. Notice any other benefits you experienced. Maybe you felt a sense of achievement for giving something a go or a sense of relief for tackling a job you've been putting off for ages. This will help you when planning activities in the future weeks. Also note the times when you felt unable to start or complete an activity in your schedule, and think about how you might make it more manageable the next time. Be patient with yourself. Remember that an improvement in mood might not be instant. Think of this as an experiment and give it a go. My father-in-law said, if you're feeling overwhelmed and helpless, not knowing what to do or where to start, clean your room. It's that simple. Clean up your space and make room for a new thought, idea, or direction. When your life is cluttered, that overwhelming feeling is not going away. You've allowed what you see in the world to trap you in your room or house. Organize donate, purge, and downsize. What a freeing feeling. Same feeling in your office? Clean your desk. Throw away file 13 because there is no home for that stuff and chances you really will need it down the road are slim. Get the cleaning products out and clean your surface. Got a window you're looking out of? Clean it too. You have to take the steps to re-engage. Maybe these tips aren't tipping the scale and you need to dive deeper into your feelings. Talk to someone who can help you sort it out. Don't stay quiet. (music) 
Dr. Craig Harper sheds some light on quiet quitting and the future of work found at psychologytoday.com. Are you feeling burnt out and overwhelmed at work? You're not alone. In fact, research shows that burnout is becoming increasingly common among young professionals, with many people silently struggling to keep up with the demands of their job. This has led to a new phenomenon known as quiet quitting, which refers to the subtle ways in which people disengage from their work and slowly start to check out, even while continuing to show up and go through the motions. This emerging trend has potentially widespread implications for future work, how people interact with their jobs, and what we see as an acceptable balance between work and home life. So how do you know if someone's quiet quitting? There are a few telltale signs to look for in the workplace. You might notice that an employee who used to be highly engaged and motivated in their job suddenly becomes less interested in what they're doing. They might seem less enthusiastic about their work or less willing to take on new challenges or projects. They complete their core tasks, but nothing more. Even here, though, you might notice that they start to miss deadlines and make mistakes that they wouldn't normally make. Another key sign of quiet quitting is a decline in the quality of work. Someone who is quiet quitting might start to produce subpar work in comparison to what they've historically produced, or they might be less willing to put an extra effort needed to meet the high standards of their job. Each of these traits indicate a lack of investment. They're turning up to work, but the effort that they're expending is minimal. A quiet quitter might also become more disengaged from other colleagues and less willing to collaborate or communicate with others. You might notice them withdrawing from social situations. Where they once attended social gatherings and seasonal parties, they now try to avoid them. You may see them less in the break room and find that they're increasingly quiet in meetings. So what can you do if you suspect someone is quiet quitting? First and foremost, it's important to offer support and help them find ways to address the underlying causes of their burnout. Give them space to talk about their feelings of burnout and help them to identify the underlying causes. You may not be qualified or in a position to actively change their schedule, but having a safe place to discuss any worries is likely to help. Consider engaging them in some informal coaching. This need not be formalized, but can involve helping them to think through how they might prioritize their workload, set boundaries around their time, or find ways to reduce their stress levels. Finally, encourage them to take breaks and make time for activities that bring them joy and relaxation, such as exercises, hobbies, and spending time with loved ones. By taking these steps, you can help your friend or colleague to overcome burnout and find a healthier, more sustainable work-life balance. Despite the negative causes of quiet quitting among burnout colleagues, there are also some opportunities to be found in situations where people are engaging in these behaviors. For one, it can create opportunities for others to step up and be seen as more productive in the workplace. If people are quietly quitting all around you, maintaining your usual level of output will make you stand out as a member of the team. Alongside this, adopting a mentoring role to help these experiencing burnout also allows you to demonstrate leadership capabilities that may place you in a favorable position when seeking promotional opportunities. 
Most importantly, though, if enough people engage in quiet quitting, this trend may provide a chance to reset social norms around overworking and burnout and to find more sustainable ways of working that prioritizes the well-being of employees. Bosses will simply have to take note if their workers are unable to keep up with the demands of previous years, which provides an opportunity for an organizational-wide discussion about what work should look like, what is reasonable, and how people can be supported to produce high-quality work in a sustainable way. So if you're feeling burnt out and overwhelmed, or if you suspect that someone you work with might be quietly quitting, don't despair. There are ways to address and overcome burnout, and opportunities can be found in these challenging circumstances. By taking steps to support and empower each other, we can create a more sustainable and healthy work environment for all. You know, I've been working in a remote environment for over 10 years. So for me, not having coworker banter and management visibility isn't a big thing. I've taught myself to reach out and stay engaged. But I'm also in management, which dictates a lot of my interactions. I know there are those in a new remote environment who are feeling left out and forgotten. How do you engage without raising your hand and raising red flags? No one is asking for unwanted attention or the wrong kind of attention. Try creating small groups with coworkers. These can be coffee catch-ups or virtual lunches or even happy hours at the end of a long work week. You can talk and brainstorm about work or you can use this time to refocus your communication on non-work life shared interests. People need connection. And even though we all have a job to do and metrics to hit, we need balance. Over at the BBC Ideas YouTube channel, Bruce Daisley, ex-VP of Twitter, gives us six tips to improve your work-life balance. Let's take a listen. Hi, I'm Bruce Daisley. I work at Twitter, but in my spare time, I've been studying work culture and how we can be happier at work. <laughs> Work's become this sort of colossal game of Jenga where we're trying to add things on top while still keep everything standing up and stable. I've put together some thoughts on ways that we can make our lives a lot less stressful. Half of all people who check their emails outside of work hours show signs of high levels of stress. The very easiest thing you can do to reduce your stress levels from work is take the number off your email app. That single act is the simplest thing that we can do to reduce our stress levels. The second best change that anyone can make is to take a lunch break. The habit of eating al desco has become so common now that it's contributing to an increase in our stress levels. And I understand when you're sitting at your desk, you're thinking you've got 100 emails left, walking away and taking a break can feel really counterintuitive. But scientists have found the best way to ensure that you feel energized is to take that pause. You might wanna try a monk mode morning. More and more of us are finding it hard to get things done because of all the interruptions. A guy called Cal Newport, who's a professor at Georgetown University in Washington, he, he wrote a book called Deep Work. And one of the ideas he gave was that we should think about having a monk mode morning. Well, monk mode is where we go somewhere that's silent, there's no interruptions. We maybe get a block of 90 minutes work done, maybe twice a week. Then we go to the office as normal, added advantages we've missed the commute, and get our emails and our meetings done. Some interesting research from the Massachusetts 
Institute of Technology shows that one of the best ways to increase workplace creativity is to increase the amount of chat. And actually, that can be chat about last night's TV. That can be chat about what's happening in sports games. Because normally those conversations then lead to work discussions. It's a strange thing that by encouraging people to have more chats, we're actually going to be achieving more at work. But the research seems to suggest that the most creative offices are the ones that chat the most. Ben Wabber, one of the researchers, said that one of the best ways to increase creativity in your office is to move the location of the coffee machine. By having the coffee machine, the kettle, the water cooler in a different place, you'll actually lead to more people having discussions, conversations. Scientists have found that one of the biggest barriers to being creative in our jobs is stress. And all of us, I guess, with our phones feel more stressed than ever before. You need to give yourself permission to have a digital Sabbath, to take time away from your work at the weekend for a bit of refreshment, a bit of renewal. Discourage your boss from emailing at the weekend because it leads to people feeling anxious when they come back to work on Monday. Anxious people can't be creative. I think in the current world, we often celebrate overwork and people working long hours. The magazine profiles we read, the TV profiles we see, are about people who work these enormous long working weeks. And in fact, all of the evidence is starting to point to the fact that maybe that's not the best idea. Maybe 40 hours of work a week is the right amount. Use our breaks and our evenings as times to re-energise ourselves so when we come back to our desks, we're full of life. Doing 40 hours of work is probably enough. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, take a step back to evaluate the source of your frustration. Clear a space to think, dream, and re-engage you have the ability to reconnect in a more meaningful way. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone through until the path was clear. That's when I found you.